The following message from Pastor Kit Johnson comes to you from Life Point Baptist Church in Apple Valley, California, where we pray that God's Word is a real blessing to you. Amen. You can turn your Bibles to Romans 1. Romans chapter 1 today. Appreciate those songs. They really uh, fit well with where we're going to be at in the, the text today. And, and uh, if you were in Sunday school, uh, Dr. Brock uh, really touched on a lot of things that really feed really well into where we're at today. So the Lord in His goodness and sovereignty kind of hopefully steered us well towards where we're at uh, this morning. Romans chapter 1. So I'm not doing a Father's Day message uh, this year. Um, done one a few years and um, did a Mother's Day message this year, but, um, uh, but we're going to continue in Romans uh, this morning. And, and uh, I'm going to, our text today is just verses 18 through 23, but I'd like to read uh, the rest of the chapter down through verse 32 uh, just to set up the context. So Romans 1 verse 18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse." For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man, and of birds, and four-footed animals, and crawling creatures. Therefore God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forevermore. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers. Haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. I was thinking this week, that there is probably no passage in the New Testament that is more offensive to the modern man than the passage that we just read. Because this passage, it goes after all the sacred cows of our society. It condemns uh, things like homosexuality and other sexual sins. It condemns all sorts of other evils that that we celebrate and, and accept as being wicked offenses against God. 
You know, this passage as well condemns naturalistic science as foolish rebellion against what we all know to be true, which is that God exists and He is the creator of us all. And to top it all off, God says He doesn't just wink at all of it and say, oh well. No, it says that He has wrath towards the rebellion of sinners. So I doubt that the next time you turn on a national celebration and our country's trying to come together to, to uh, you know, celebrate some event, that they're going to read Romans 1, 18 through 32. That probably is not going to be on the docket. And, and the reality is, is that much of professing Christendom would, would like to believe that this passage is not in the Bible. But it is in the Bible. And, um, and, and it's a passage of which we should not be ashamed. No, no, quite the opposite. I mean, this is a profound passage of Scripture. I've, I've just really enjoyed this week uh, digging into it and thinking about it because, because this passage is full of wisdom. And, and while it is direct and strong, it is a gracious gift of God because it exposes many of Satan's most destructive lies for, for our world today. And it's incredible how this passage from 2,000 years ago perfectly describes 21st century America. And it also equips us as Christians with some really important tools for for interpreting the world in which we live and knowing how we should rightly respond to it. So so this morning, we're going to look at verses 18 through 23. And I'd like to begin, uh, and verses 18 through 23, uh, describe specifically God's wrath against man for refusing to honor him as, as the creator and Lord of all things, even though his existence and creative power is evident in the world that he has made. And so I'd like to begin in verses 19 and 20 with God's gracious revelation. Helps if you turned on. All right, God's gracious revelation. Now, now before we go any further here, I think it's important that we just take a moment and set this passage in context. So if you're here last week, last week we looked at verses 16 and 17, where where Paul explains the good news of the gospel, that that God saves sinners by crediting us with the righteousness of His Son. It's incredibly good news. And and then in the flow of Romans, chapter 1, verse 18, down through the end of chapter 4, explain this incredible good news of the gospel. But but before Paul can get to the good news, of course, if you're going to appreciate the good news, you first have to understand the bad news. To, to appreciate salvation, you have to understand that you need to be saved. And, and chapter 1, verse 18 through verse 32, the passage we read a moment ago, begin that argument with a broad perspective on how the world rebels against the authority and revelation of God. And God says that mankind, as a general rule, refuses to honor Him as God and give him the obedience that he deserves. And, um, and yet verses 19 and 20 argue that God has not left mankind without knowledge. God has revealed himself to all people everywhere. Even if they have never heard the gospel or seen a Bible in their lives. And so I'd like to answer three questions from verses 19 and 20. And the first one is, is how has God revealed himself? And the simple answer in verses 19 and 20 is that God has revealed himself to all people 
through the creation of the world. And by extension, through the entire universe that he has made. So, so creation reveals to mankind that God exists. And, and that's a common theme in Scripture. So Psalm 19 verses 1 and 2 say, The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. Similarly, uh, Psalm uh, 50 verses 6. Verse 6 says, The heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. So the Bible teaches all over the place that, that all of creation displays the glory and the character of God. Now, I love how verse 20 describes it. You know, that, that God is spirit, right? So, so God is invisible. It says he, his invisible attributes. So, so, so John 1.18 says that no one has ever seen God at any time. But while God is invisible because he is spirit, Verse 20 says that God has made his invisible attributes clear. They are clearly seen in the things that he has made. Now, now that's not to say that that everything that there is to know about God is is evident in creation. So in my office, I have a couple of books that are over 800 pages long that are fully dedicated to the doctrine of God. All right? Just the doctrine of God. And and you will not discover that level of, of of detail and precision by just looking at the mountains or, or looking at the stars. So, so we need the Bible, right, to, to get to that level of precision and detail uh, about who God is and, and what His will for us, and especially to know what He has done for us in Christ. And, and tonight, uh, if you come back, uh, we'll talk more about, about what general revelation, as we, as we commonly call it, what God has revealed to all people, what it can and cannot teach us. But for now, the Bible consistently teaches that creation powerfully declares God's glory. So so verse 19 says that that the knowledge of God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. And verse 20 says that God's eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what He has made. So, so, for example, what, what, let's talk about what that means a little bit. Now think about the complexity of your body. Or think about the complexity of so many other things in creation. You know, it really is incredible to, to, to learn about and understand just the, the complexities of, of all that God has made. And, and what God is saying here is that complexity clearly demonstrates the fact that this is all the product of intelligent design, not mere chance. Now, of course, a lot of people want to tell you that that's not so, that, that this all did come about by, by just purely naturalistic random causes. Uh, this spring, Heidi and I watched a documentary where they were trying to explain how, how the world was formed following the Big Bang, and, and it was quite fascinating. But the reality is, it was incredibly far-fetched. And where it really got fishy was where they tried to explain how there is so much water on this planet and, and how we have such a perfect atmosphere for life. And folks, as much as our world wants to deny it, it is an incredibly big stretch to believe that all the complexities of this world just came about by pure chance. You know, let's suppose, for example, that, that you are going to hike through a wilderness somewhere and, and your understanding is, is that no human being has ever been in this place. 
and you're walking through this wilderness and you find a chainsaw. Now, if you find a chainsaw sitting in this, in this forest, your first thought is not going to be, wow, I wonder how a chainsaw, this, this, this machine came about just randomly through natural causes. Now, if you find a chainsaw, you're immediately going to assume that someone must have designed that chainsaw and left it in the forest because chainsaws don't naturally evolve. And, and so it's the same. And so the simplest explanation of our universe and of the complexities of our universe will always be that an intelligent God designed all of it. And beyond that, every view of the universe is an opportunity for us to view or to see clearly the invisible attributes of God. Or or more specifically, Paul says, his eternal power and his divine nature. So you look out at the galaxies of space, and of course, as, as our technology develops, we can understand and appreciate more and more just how vast our universe is. Or uh, you drive up to Mammoth with us in a few weeks and you see some of those incredible mountain scenes as you're driving up 395. You know, all of that displays to us the, the glory and the power of the divine nature. That God is powerful, strong, and good. You know, the complexities and, and intricate design of your body and of so many other things in creation. It all declares to us that God is wise, that he is attentive to detail, and just has a brilliance about him that is incomprehensible. The beauty of a sunset and all the other good things that God gives us, they they remind us that God is beautiful, that he is good and generous. Acts 14 verses 16 and 17 say, In the generations gone by, he permitted all the nations to go their own ways. And yet he did not leave himself without witness, and that he did good, and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. That passage is saying that every good bit of food that you eat, and every other blessing you enjoy, the rain that falls from the sky and all the abundance of life, all of it testifies to the fact that our God is good and he is kind. And so God has revealed himself to all people. Or, or well, uh, God has revealed himself in creation. It just answered my second question. To whom has God revealed himself? And Paul answers that God has revealed himself to all humanity. Now, now yes, it's true that there are many places in the world where the gospel has never been. And in fact, um, people who study it tell us that there are billions of people in the world without any practical Christian witness. And that's a fact that that really should grieve our souls. But, But this passage and others I've quoted all teach that God has revealed His eternal power and His divine nature to all humanity in every corner of the world through His creative work. And we'll see when we get to chapter 2 that God has also revealed Himself to us in the gift of conscience. That, that every one of us is born with, with a sense that there is such a thing as right and wrong. That it's not just that we have moral awareness and a sense that there is an authority that establishes for all people a, a difference between right and wrong. So, so, so all people can see these things. Now, of course, many people today would profess to be atheists. They would say, I don't believe there is any such thing as God. So they would say this passage is not true. 
But, but the Bible says that they are just trying as hard as they can. They are lying to themselves about what they actually know is so. They know God is real. And God has clearly shown them that in the things that he has made. And then the third question we need to answer is what's the significance of God's revelation? Well, verse 20 says, it concludes by saying that the, the implication of all of this is so that they are without excuse. Now, now you might ask, well, excuse from what? And the only answer in, in context is there in verse 18, which is the wrath of God. So therefore, Paul is saying that no one will stand before God someday at the great white throne judgment and legitimately claim, I had no idea you existed. I had no idea that you were real. Or, or I had no idea that I should honor you and serve you. And as a result, God will be fully justified when he condemns those without Christ to eternity in hell. And God says they have no excuse. Now, now I realize that raises a host of questions that, that you might have or, or that someone else, in your, you know, maybe your kids have or someone you're trying to share the gospel with may have. And I don't have time this morning to, to fully unpack the implications of that. Uh, again, that's, that's what we're going to try and do this evening. Uh, but, but the big question is, well, well if that's so, then, then is general revelation sufficient to save? Can someone look at the stars and arrive at the gospel simply by looking at general revelation? And, and, and Paul does not say that that is so. He only says that they are without excuse. So general revelation is sufficient to condemn. It is not sufficient to save. Now, now that's a hard truth, isn't it? And you might sit there and wonder, well, how can that be fair? That can't be right. And, and I guess, again, we'll, we'll unpack this more tonight, but I think that the simple answer that we have to give to that is that God is the determiner of what is just, not you and I. And it is not our job to sit in judgment on God. It is our job to submit to His judgment. And, and, but all those things are really important. And, and so I hope you'll come back tonight and, and think with them with me so that you can do a good job of articulating them to others. But for now, the main application of verses 19 and 20 is that we need, like Paul, to have an ambition to take the gospel to all people. Because the Bible is clear that if they do not hear the gospel... They will not be saved. So, so we need to go out and tell people the good news that, that Jesus died for their sins and they can be born again through Christ. And we need to work with other churches to, to take the gospel to the ends of the earth so that there are fewer and fewer places in the world with no access to the gospel. So, so, so verses 19 and 20 say that God has graciously revealed himself, but verses 21 through 23 describe man's foolish rebellion. Now, now, verses 21 through 23 are some of the most tragic verses that you will read in all of Scripture. And they describe the, the downward spiral of humankind from God to absurdity, which has been tragically repeated time after time after time. I mean, like, these verses are, are such an apt description of our world. And they begin with the fact that everyone knows God is real. So verse 21 says, for even though they knew God, 
So, so of course, that doesn't mean that they all know him as Savior. No, no the point in context is that they know he exists. And that is because of what? It is because God, as verse 19 says, has made it evident within them, for God made it evident to them. So, so they know through creation and through conscience that God is real. And the fact that all people know God exists, you know, it's a simple point. But, but I think it's really a reassuring point as we just listen to our world bark at us and beat their chests at us. You know, so often we, we feel that pressure, right, of, of a humanistic culture that looks down their noses at us as Christians. And, and it's also a big deal as we try to share the gospel with people. You know, so, so the new atheists, you know, Richard Dawkins and all those guys, they can scream and yell and beat their chests all they want. That they do not believe God is real and that they've proven that God is not real. But God says they don't really believe it. They don't really believe it. And it's all just a ruse. All that noise is all just them trying to drown out the, the, the conviction of God that they know that he is there. So don't be intimidated by it. And don't buy the lie that they're the objective smart people and you're just the superstitious fool for believing what the Bible teaches. It's nonsense. And as well, understand that, that when you do share the gospel with people, it is not up to you to prove the existence of God. They already know that he is real. And so I think it's good to, to answer people's legitimate questions. Like if someone or your child or someone is, is coming to you with a question about the Bible or the existence of God, then, then we should obviously feel free to answer those and do our best to articulate those things well. And, and those answers have real value for us because they can be very faith-building. But, but generally speaking, you know, just assume that they believe in God and, and bring them to the Scriptures, quote what God says, you know, and, and avoid just getting drowned in you know, some goofy philosophical debate that really is not about discovering truth. It's about proving their intelligence. So, so focus on the gospel. And so, so people know God is real. But Paul notes that instead of worshiping Him, sinners refuse to honor God. Now, now, people want to believe that we are born morally neutral, or even that we're born good. You know, that, that most of our world believes we, we come into the world as innocent people with a blank slate. All right, Christianity calls that Pelagianism. It's a very old concept. And so how many times, and, and, and so because of that, that they, you know, people want to believe that they are objective, and that they can look at truth, and they are smart enough to look at everything, and, and that they can arrive at ultimate truth on their own. Now, how many times have you heard someone say something like, well, well, I just take the best of all the religions, and I, I take what's good in each of them, and I've, I've created my own worldview, my own understanding of, of what's right and wrong, and what is true and what is not. And, and folks, we need to understand just how arrogant that claim is. For someone to think that they have a perfect comprehension of all the facts and that they can put them together and that they are capable of arriving at ultimate truth on their own in a way that all these other people before them were not. It is absolutely arrogant. And God says it is foolish because sinners are not objective. They are blinded by sin. 
Now, verse 18 says that they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now, now the grammar of that verb suppress indicates that this is not like, just like a one-time thing. This is, this is the, the life pattern of the unbeliever. So, so, so the knowledge of God just keeps popping to the surface. But, but they don't want to believe in him. So, so they live their lives playing whack-a-mole, you know, where, where the knowledge of God pops up and they hit it. And then it pops over here and they, ah, they got to hit it. And, and they're just living their lives trying to suppress the truth of God, which is all around them. Because they don't want to believe it. Now, similarly, notice what he says in verse 21. He says, for even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Now, folks, sinners do not want to honor God. Now, now they might want to honor some God of their own making, but they do not want to honor the God of Scripture because that means they have to obey Him and worship Him. And they don't want to thank God in the true sense for what they have. They want to think that they made it themselves and that they're the master of their faith. They don't want to give ultimate thanks to God for the things that they enjoy. They, they suppress the truth of God. And, and folks, it's all tragic. Because all that effort to suppress, suppress the truth, it, you know, people think that it's going to give them happiness, that they're going to be better off. But, but it's not so. It doesn't bring joy. It just leads people further and further into destruction and sorrow. And yet people all around us live this passage every day of their lives. It's tragic. But, but sadly, the spiral is far from complete. The third stage in this spiral is that sinners worship the creation instead of the creator. Now, now because we're made in the image of God, we all want to worship something. But rather than worshiping the true God, verse 21 says that they become futile in their speculations and their foolish heart is darkened. Now, now by the way, I, just, I, I should have mentioned this earlier. You know, the, the past tense of all these verbs is not necessarily intended to describe something that happened just one time in history. So, so the Greek uh, past tense here, the aorist tense, oftentimes describes a, a timeless reality. So, so what this passage is describing is something that's been repeated an infinite number of times throughout human history. So, so that said, I mean, you can't improve on the God of the Bible. So, so if you worship anything other than the God of the Bible... It is absolute futility, speculation, and foolishness. And yet, sadly, we are surrounded by people who live this passage every day of their lives. You know, just this Wednesday, I was listening to uh, Albert Moeller on his, his daily podcast, and, and he, talk, he was talking about the growing industry of life coaching that is based on uh, based on New Age spirituality and, and Eastern mysticism. And so it's a you know, big thing you know, that, that people you know, use crystals and you know, various things to you know, try and know more and understand more. And, and, uh, and so a New York Times columnist had written an, a, an article on, on this growing phenomenon. And, uh, and she makes a very insightful comment. She says, if we are tempted to dismiss their taste for crystals and energy healing as New Age flim-flam, it's partly because they face up to something that many, many modern Westerners struggle to admit. Neither total submission to a traditional religious institution nor atheistic materialism feels right. 
We kind of do want the universe to hold our hand without bossing us around too much. That is an incredibly honest and insightful comment about our day. That, that, That people want a higher power, but they don't want it to be too high. Because then it gets to tell them what to do. But, but they don't want to be alone either. Because they know that God is real. But sadly, the absurdity only gets worse. Verse 23 says, And they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man, and of birds, and four-footed animals, and crawling creatures. Now, now notice the down, downward spiral in this verse from, from worshiping God to worshiping man, and then, and then he kind of works from, you know, the top of, you know, you got birds in the sky, down to mammals, and ultimately to reptiles who crawl in the dirt. And it's crazy, but again, history demonstrates that this is what people do over and over. Humanity has imagined all sorts of gods, from worshiping the sun and the moon and the stars, down to worshiping frogs. And yet, all of these gods that they imagine are inferior to the true God of Scripture. And again, it's not because they don't know that there is a sovereign and righteous God. It's because they do not want to honor Him, and they do not want to be holy as He is holy. So so they come up with an alternative God that fits their agenda and how they want the world to be. Now, a lot of Westerners would say, well, we're too smart for nonsense like that. We would never worship a frog or the moon or anything like that. But the reality is, is is very few of them actually believe that or live that. I mean, this quote, it fits far more people than there are atheists, so to speak, out there in the world. And and so we have to appreciate that the the impulse that that, that is in man to, to worship something but to make it less than the God of the Bible because of the depravity of their hearts. And then if we're going to share the gospel well, if we've got to grieve over this and be zealous to tell people who God is in the salvation in Christ. And then the fourth stage in all of this is that sinners call their foolishness wisdom. Look at verse 22. Professing to be wise, they became fools. And isn't that just a perfect description of humanity? Now, for millennia, people have carved idols, bowed in worship, and then boasted about what they made. Like, I made a God. Isn't that ridiculous? That you could make a God? And today, people boast that they have explained God away, that they, you know, Nietzsche talked about how he had killed God and, and all this nonsense. You know, think about the fact that today is Father's Day, and our culture loves to boast about how it is toppling patriarchy and, and the biblical family because they believe all those things are forms of oppression. And of course, we want to confront men who are abusive and evil. But, but the reality is, is that our culture is not just looking to remove abuse. They hate the concept of the biblical family, and they want it destroyed. And and yet the evidence clearly states that this new morality is not making us better. It is destroying lives. It is cultivating violence and mental disorders. And it is tearing our society apart. And yet people will boast. You know, they've dedicated this whole month 
to boasting and how they are destroying these things that the biblical home and so forth that they think are so bad. When all they're doing is destroying themselves. And, and, in fo- and folks, all of it is terribly tragic. Because God made us to worship and serve him. And he graciously gave us this book so that we could know him. Know how to have a relationship with him and how to live wisely and fruitfully in the middle of his will. You can't improve on the scriptures. So so don't forget that. Love the Bible. Cling to everything it says, whether it's popular or not. And and don't be intimidated by the world. See through all the the facade and all the, the chest beating and see it for the foolishness that all of it is. And see the depravity that stands behind it and, and the lies of Satan. And then share the gospel. Tell people who God is and the good news that Jesus saves. But because you are zealous that people would worship God and because you want what is best for the sinner. And, and all of that is imperative because verse 18 says that man's foolish rebellion inspires God's righteous indignation. Look at verse 18 again. Paul says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now that is a very heavy verse, and and there's a couple of questions that we need to answer related to it. So first of all, what is God's wrath? Now, Now that is an important question because... We as sinners have a really hard time comprehending the wrath of God. And that's because our, our experience of wrath is never holy, right? I mean, our, our, our wrath is generally filled with rage and, and uncontrolled passion. And so we have a hard time comprehending a, a holy God with a holy wrath. You know, and as well, we just don't like the idea. We don't like the idea that, that God would be angry at our sin. So, so it's important that we distinguish God's holy wrath from human rage, right? Which is irrational and generally speaking out of control. You know, when the Bible talks about God's wrath, you shouldn't think of a guy, you know, a drunk, you know, a violent drunk who's throwing stuff around and just mad at the world. No, God's wrath is rational. It is always in control. It is reasonable and it is rooted in perfect righteousness, justice. And I think it's worth emphasizing that his wrath is ultimately rooted in love. You know, folks, it is good. And we ought to be glad that God has a wrathful response toward evil and the destruction that evil causes. I came across this quote by John Frame this week that I really appreciate. He says, God's wrath is an outworking of his love. Once we understand God's love, we know that it is a, it has a tough love, one that respects his standards of righteousness and burns in jealousy against those who betray it. God's wrath serves the purposes of his love, and his love is richer for it. It bestows on his beloved the ultimate blessing of a sin-free world. Now, the reason we have a problem with God's wrath is not because God is harsh. Or, or he should lighten up a bit. No, the reason we have a problem with God's wrath is because we think too much of ourselves. We think we are more 
than we actually are. And, and we don't appreciate, furthermore, how terrible sin is and the destruction that sin has brought to the good world that God originally made. I mean, the only right response to sin and to what sin has done to the world is the wrath of God. So so then the second question we need to answer is, well, why does God have wrath? And it's important to say that that wrath is not an attribute of God, right? So, So God is not eternally wrathful, like he is eternally love, right? So so there has to be an offense to arouse God's wrath. And and verse 18 says that that's exactly what has happened. God's only just and, and righteous response to the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth is wrath. So, so the occasion for God's wrath is the rebellion of sinners who reject the truth of God and the demands of Scripture. Now, now it's one thing to say, amen, God is wrathful when, when we are thinking of Vladimir Putin and what he's doing in Ukraine or or we think of the Chinese Communist Party committing genocide against its own people. I mean, we see things like that, and we are glad that, that God does not sit by passively, that He is angry against that, and that someday He will end all evil. But, but you can't really appreciate this passage and its place in the book of Romans and the gospel of Christ unless you come to grips with the fact that God has wrath toward your sin and my sin and the sin of every person who has ever been born. And and it's it's hard to stomach, right? You know, to to think that that some of the kind people that we know actually would stand under the wrath of God. And, And yet, all of us are ultimately guilty of ungodliness and unrighteousness. And and the reality is, is that while we might do a good job of covering it up, the reality is that all people who are outside of Christ suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And so rather than being offended, uh, being offended by God, we, we need to be offended by our sin. And we need to appreciate just how horrible and rebellious all sin really is. And specifically, We all must come to grips with the fact that my sin is so vile that it deserves the eternal judgment of God. Now, now I know, again, that's that's a hard truth to stomach. And and I can't fully comprehend it, right? Because I can't fully comprehend God. Like, Like, there's no way that your mind will totally get wrapped around the concept of God's wrath against your sin because because this side of glory, we, we, we can't grasp the holiness of God and, and how horrible sin really is. So, but, but God says it's so. And as hard as it is to hear, we have to accept it before we can ever appreciate the good news of the gospel. I mean, the gospel is only good news, and, and we only grasp our dependence on the gospel in light of God's wrath. So, so don't lie to yourself about you know how you're really a good person and God really should love me because of how great I am. No. Admit with God 
that you are hopelessly condemned under God's wrath because you have sinned and rebelled against your will, His will. And then it's only then that you're able to run to God to mercy and grace. And praise God that the Bible teaches that there is plenty of grace, abundant grace and mercy in the cross of Christ. That that yes, our sin is so horrible that it deserves the eternal destruction in hell, but, but God sent His Son and Jesus endured the wrath of God on the cross. And He took it out of the way, Colossians 2 says. And you can be saved. You can be delivered from God's wrath And you can be placed in Christ where you are forever secure. The Bible says, if you just repent of your sin, you you agree with God about what your sin is. And you trust wholly and completely in what Jesus accomplished. And if you do that, you can leave today not standing under the wrath of God, but as we talked about last week, secure in the righteousness of Jesus. I'd rather be under the righteousness of God than the wrath of God. So so believe on Christ today and be saved. If you have questions, if there's things you don't understand, you're sitting there and your soul is, you know, you're in knots because you don't like this, but it's there and it's true. But we'll talk to us because we want to walk you through carefully and lovingly what the Scriptures teach. And if you are saved, this passage should compel us to share the gospel with everyone around us. And folks, we are surrounded by thousands of people. And we live in a world with billions of people who are under the wrath of God. And they will be condemned to hell unless they hear the good news of the gospel and believe on Jesus. And don't let that truth ever grow. I mean, that as well as truths, that, that all these people are, are under the wrath of God, that it's kind of easier to pretend like it's not there, Right? Because it is so grievous. But it's true. And we can't ever let that fact grow stale. It should sting to think about people who you love that you know do not believe on Christ and that they are under the wrath of God. It should sting. But but then it should lead us to lovingly warn them about the wrath to come and, and to boldly urge them to believe on Christ. Because Christ is their only hope. So, so, so this week, I mean, let that fact weigh on your soul and let it then drive you to share the gospel boldly, aggressively, and lovingly. And then finally, the key issue in this entire passage is ultimately worship. We were made to worship God. And the greatest sin that anyone can commit is to worship something else in God's place. So so this day and every day, let's not do what sinners do in verse 21, and let's honor Him as God. Let's see God for, for who He really is and give Him the glory and the honor that He deserves and let's worship Him for who He is and then let's give thanks because we're not the masters of our fate. Every good thing that you enjoy, every blessing of life comes to you from the hand of God. And so, I mean, isn't it fascinating? Of all the things that Paul could mention here, he mentions honoring God 
and giving thanks as fundamental acts of rebellion. So let's make sure that we honor God and let's make sure that we give thanks for every blessing we enjoy from his hand. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this marvelous and wise and good passage of Scripture. And Father, I, I pray for any who are here that do not know Christ as Savior, that today your Spirit would convict and do a hard but necessary work to bring them to salvation. And I pray they'd leave knowing Christ as Savior. And for those of us that know you as Savior, I pray that you would strengthen our faith, that we would believe what your word says, that we would not be intimidated by our culture, but that we would stand faithful and that, Lord, we would be bold in taking the gospel to all people and sharing the good news that Jesus saves. And help us to live every day of our lives honoring you as God, submitting to your will, and giving thanks for every blessing that we enjoy. In Jesus' name, amen.